I want you to stay, Mariette. You've got to stay. You can't go now. I must go. I'm crazy about you. I know it. I love you. I believe you. Then why do you want to go? Because I want to make it tough for you. We have a long time ahead of us, Gaston. Weeks, months, years. Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1929, and Season 3 draws to a close as Brom Reuter joins us to discuss Eternal Love. If you've enjoyed the show, I invite you to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Everyone, we are here again with Brom Reuter. Hello, Brom. Hey, hello. I, I feel like we've been on a downward trajectory with your movies. You started with the Oyster Princess, and then we talked about the Wildcat. Uh, you know, Oyster Princess, we all loved. Wildcat, you know, we have mixed feelings about, and Eternal Love, which uh, nobody loves. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, Wildcat. We talked a lot last time about it being a proposal of a movie. What if movie? But this, this one feels the opposite of that. Hey, look, it's a movie like the ones you know. In the Scott Iman book, there's a wonderful line. This is Andrew Martin. The movie didn't gel and Lubitsch knew it. We all knew it, but we just had to get through it. And you can feel it when you watch the film. It was that they say in Germany, ohne Liebe gemacht. Ohne Liebe gemacht. Yeah. Made without love. It was a child not conceived in love. That is apparent in this movie, probably. It's a very short movie. It's like 71 minutes. Mm-hmm. Short for this period. I mean, the previous one we covered was The Student Prince, which is almost two hours. Like I said, it's what you would expect from a movie like this. Still, it is Lubitsch. So still, there are some flavors that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Some small expressions that suddenly pop up and you get excited. But this time around, I got more excited about them because there was much less around it to be excited about. And I didn't really know why that was until you sent me the pages from the book that you were just reading a part of. And I realized, oh, there's a lethargicness, a lethargy, I guess, about everything in this movie. Everyone's just a little bit lethargic, missing that pizzazz. Because I watched a little bit of So This Is Paris from the beginning. And immediately I'm laughing and I'm having fun. Like I watched like the first two, three minutes. And there's so much more joy to be had already there. Because in the process of watching this one, I was thinking, was this always Lubitsch? Because I haven't seen Lubitsch in a while, except for the last episode. Mm-hmm. I watched a couple around them. Is this Lubitsch? And then I checked on a previous one. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not Lubitsch. This is him now, being an autopilot. To contextualize yeah. why Eternal Love is the way it is. What is not interesting about Eternal Love is the film. <laughs> what is interesting is the position it occupies in Ernst Lubitsch's career. This is the season finale. And the reason it's the season finale is that this is his last film without synchronized direct sound it is not a silent movie no not technically there there is a soundtrack 
which was one of the big delights of this movie is that the soundtrack is actually synchronized and has sound effects. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you still have the intertitles. You still have no dialogue whatsoever until you hit the intertitles and stuff. So it still works like a film of that way. And why was that again? Like, it took them three years to release it? Certain movie studios had moved over to direct recording sound at this point. You had, of course, the jazz singer over at Warner Brothers. And talkies were being made with some regularity in 1928 and 1929. I mean, this is months before the Love Parade, which is Ernst Lubitsch's first talkie. There's almost no gap between these seasons in terms of the gap between the this episode in Love Parade coming out is probably about the same as the gap between both of those productions. But United Artists had not yet switched over to recording synchronized sound. Mm. And there were numerous stopgap attempts made to sell these late, late silent films. For example, you know, numerous films were retrofitted with sound. Abel Gons notoriously did that with Napoleon. He literally dubbed films meant for silent with people who had to talk really fast to match the lip sync, that sort of thing. And in this case, this is just one of numerous ways of doing it, which is that you have a film that was shot silently and then a score that has been recorded and synchronized with the film to playback. And while they're recording the score, they essentially Mickey Mouse in sound effects, uh, a table being thrown over, a glass being smashed, a gun being shot. And those would have been recorded live with the orchestra. So it's almost like, you know, the 1812 overture or something where you have like a live cannon. Now you watch it and the result feels almost like an avant-garde score because it has these almost like sampling elements, what sounds like sampling now. Mm-hmm. But really, it's just an orchestral score with certain things that are designed to sound like things in the film. Lubitsch had already done this with The Patriot, did it again here. Um, although, as Dave Cairns mentioned in the Patriot episode, the reviews for the soundtrack of The Patriot were not great, at least for the uh, for the sound effects. And mm. here, this being our only surviving bit of that from Lubitsch, I think it's fun. No, it is. The gunshots sound nothing like a gunshot. They sound kind of weak in a way. And also, mm-hmm. they, they're not placed far away from the microphone so at some point i think it's camille horn who hears them in the background in the mountains but they sound as if like someone's going right next to you like poof yeah sound perspective is not a thing yeah yeah yeah, exactly so so there's no placement for it and yeah the table i love the table because it really tried to sell it but eventually i think it's just a bunch of percussions like people throwing stuff on a drum or something like that and it's far too few uh, objects to be thrown on a drum compared to the objects on the table that fall over. What I did notice, which I think was something that they had to get used to, is the fact that you work with reels. So at certain points, the soundtrack fades out and then you get the cigarette burns or the cigar burns and then the next reel is started. And then it picks up at the same song, which had a really interesting flow to it, which I bet was one of those things where they were figuring it out as they went along. I kept wondering about that. The silent films that just have music, like there are not many of them, I assume, because people immediately went to dialogue, because why would you keep making silent films if you have direct sound, right? You have two different technical problems to solve, right? One is how do you record direct sound to synchronize with the camera on the day? then how do you synchronize that with the film later? It's basically just recording a sound film, MOS, which is without sound, which is the American term for it. One thing I did notice, you can see the negative effects it has on the quality of the score. Say you're watching Lady of Windermere's Fan in 1925. 
and you're at one of the big movie palaces, what are you going to get? A great live like symphony or at least a chamber orchestra, right? <laughs> Even if you're at one of the small movie houses, you're going to get a live piano player or an organ player or something that sounds good, fills the room. Yeah. And suddenly it is striking to go from the student prints to this because student prints, that's still like a TV rip of a score from the 80s. It sounds great. It's stereo. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Wow. It's stereo. The orchestra sounds like an orchestra. In this, it's that classic frying egg sound yeah. of very early sync film soundtracks where the score sounds so thin. So it is in some weird ways a downgrade. It is, but I have a soft spot for... So I've seen too many silent movies that I think that was one, like a Lubitsch that I watched for a previous season. I can't remember which one of the two it was, but there was this like almost avant-garde organ score the entire time. Oh, uh, that was The Doll. Yeah, that it was, was awful. The one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Notorious. I mean, everyone I've, I've shown that film to goes, what is with that score on the yeah. Eureka release? <laughs> They're too clean. The sound is too clean for, you know, I've watched too many Chaplin shorts with a piano soundtrack and they're always too clean. There's something about the graininess that fits the image that I'm seeing. You know, the image is flickering. It's kind of like out of focus. It's an old transfer. It's one of the few restorations I've seen where it has a disclaimer at the front. This is a Mary Pickford Foundation funded restoration, it seems. UCLA. Quick side note that I love the fact that they lost this film and then someone was going through Mary Pickford's archive, who's not in this movie whatsoever. And then they just found it there. I was like, oh, she was just holding on to it because she liked the movie or the beginning of the only digital version of this film states, note, no original 35 millimeter nitrate materials for eternal love are known to survive. Although UCLA has used the best available resources, the picture quality of its restoration is substandard, which by the standard of season three, American Silent currently available restorations, and I'm discounting the Momo ones because they're mostly unavailable. This is one of the better ones. <laughs> this looks 10 times better than the widely available version of Forbidden Paradise. It's still bad, but I, I appreciate the disclaimer. It's not, it doesn't look great. Basically, preservation status on Wikipedia says this film was thought to be lost until a 16 mil print was found in the film collection of Mary Pickford uh, and was released with its Vitaphone. Uh, music and sound effects track in the 90s, and the film was given a DVD release on April 24, 2001. What I wanted to say about the soundtrack was like, it's not optical, you just said, it's Phytophone, I guess. Yes, Phytophone is a sound on disc system, which means that it's actually pressed onto a big wax record played alongside the films that was eventually phased out in, in lieu of obviously optical tracks. Oh, that makes sense then that they also do it in reels because they probably just switch out the records as well. Yeah, there is this like vinyl crackle to the soundtrack. There is that that what you were saying, fried eggs quality to certain peaks in the in the soundtrack, which... I wish more old films, especially silent films, would do because it gives it a texture that is more reminiscent of the image that I'm looking at. And Mm. like I said earlier, too often I find the soundtracks to be too clean compared to the image that I'm looking at. Not a fan of like Carl Davis's clean 7.1 orchestral. I have never (laughs) experienced the joys of which you keep referring to the Napoleon. uh, This is the Napoleon run, right? Yeah, he did a few, but Napoleon's the most the, the, the most maximalist in terms of both the score and audio quality. But then it's like big, but this is like a small orchestra or like what I was just saying, the Charlie Chaplin shorts where, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. a piano. It's just a single person behind a piano. And that piano is like squeaking, like squeaky clean. Let's think of the historiography of it, though. When you're watching a silent film in like a film palace, right? And let's say that a restorationist wants to recreate the feeling of watching like 
I don't know, Intolerance at like one of the grand movie theaters with a live score. Live score won't have crackle or anything, right? The no, live I score know. will sound super clean. And it'll also like surround you because it bounces off the space and everything. So w- w- would would the utmost 7.1 surround sound audio with 24-bit encoding, that does seem like it would match that, wouldn't it? Okay, okay. I'll, 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 uh, I'll go on this journey with you because the moment <laughs> you started that sentence, I realized what corner I had painted myself in. But <laughs> if you would do something like that and want to give me the experience of it, then, you know, be full David Fincher about it and re-record the piano in the room so that you would also have that reverberation if, if, as if I'm sitting in the middle of the room and there's a piano in front of me being played. That so also you're saying never happens. at most mixes only. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> like, uh, so we, we need a piano that's been at most to, set to to model a room. I actually think, I mean, I think I've definitely heard that in some silent, silent scores, but there's so many different, I mean, there's so many interesting yeah, different ways to deal with it. I love this version because, yeah, it has the crackle. It was intended to, to be shown this way and it did give it an interesting texture. Like I said in the beginning, there is not a lot of joys to be had during this movie so i was just latching on to whatever i could find uh mm-hmm. and the crackling soundtrack is one of the joys to be had in this in this uh for me at least because i'm an old texture obsolescent devices nerd so i like those type of textures because there's a little bit more for me to explore i guess it it it, it reads nice to my ears i also love the cinematic orchestra soundtrack to man with a movie camera which is like a very different type of soundtrack yeah even like hugely revisionist stuff like that soundtrack yeah. can be great it yeah. creates a new work of art and that's part of what i find very inspiring about dave kerr's thought about silent films where by watching it, you complete the film in a way that you don't have the opportunity for with a talkie usually at least with narrative talkies where you watch the silent film you have to infer and the fact that the soundtrack is not a fixed thing necessarily helps with that too yeah exactly yeah and and, and it can move with whichever way you want you can go back to those films and you can do it over make a new soundtrack change the whole mood of the film i've seen terrible versions of nosferatu with like black metal soundtracks and stuff which uh you know (laughs) (laughs) which you think will be very cool but ultimately doesn't work as well as everyone hoped it would there are two other elements to the history of this film that I think mm. are interesting. You viewer might be asking, why is the film such a unloved child? There are a couple of good reasons for that. First is that the film is it's a contractual obligation. Ernst Lubitsch owed Joe Schenk at United Artists a film and was developing a film with Hans Crowley. Schenk then sold that script he was writing, which was called The Last of Mrs. Chenet, to MGM as a Norma Shearer vehicle. And Lubitsch kind of, the Scott Iman book makes it sound like Lubitsch thrust his hand into a box of scripts and pulled out the first one. Yeah. And so that, that film was called Avalanche, later retitled Eternal Love. And it is this John Barrymore vehicle we see before us. John Barrymore was star of this and he was going through a tough time. He apparently suspected his fiance, Dolores Costello, of infidelity. And during the later studio part of the film's production, he was very drunk. This passage of the book has a lot of like odd stories about the making of this film. And it seemed like no one had a good time. A lot of it was filmed in the Canadian Rockies. People didn't like schlepping. Uh, Ernst Lubitsch, not a fan of location shooting. <laughs> and again, locations look great. I th- The most yeah. stunning shots in the film are like the wides of the village, which I you know I guess might have been a studio, but the Canadian Rockies come across well in the 16 mil grainy quality. We can see them in. This is a film that was kind of rushed in production. John Barrymore could not wait to get it over with. It was kind of dumped out into the market. It didn't make its money back yeah then it was lost for 70 years 
And yeah, no one was eager to find it. And you can notice this in everything, especially like narratively, as everything starts adding up, the more it stops making sense. I think you had a similar issue. There is a party at some point, a masked ball, and everyone has like masks on and everyone's dancing around. And then at a certain point during the night, it's like, oh, take your masks off. Look at who's around you. Oh, my God, it's all your friends because we're a small village. Everyone knows each other. And (laughs) John Barrymore, he thinks he has Camilla, which is his love interest, the eternal love, the titular eternal love. And then there is this part where... Basically, they need to have a fight. Like, narratively, it need a fight needs to happen at a certain point. A fight between the two. Well, how about we backtrack a bit? Because yes, I, I, sure. think it's, I think this is one of the few films where we should, like, start at okay, the beginning. Because sure. this film has a very disjointed plot, despite the fact that it's simple. It's a romantic melodrama about, you know, two Swiss people in the Swiss mountains, doubled by the Canadian Rockies, fall in love. They can't be together due to reasons. And then they, spoiler alert, die. Simple enough, right? You know, it's Romeo and Juliet in the snow. Although there are numerous scenes in this that actually recall Romeo and Juliet in the snow. The Lubitsch film from 1920. <laughs> um, the that, that sounds familiar, but yes. The masked ball is actually weirdly visually similar to the masked ball in that film. Really? And, okay. Yeah. And so is the town, the exteriors. But point being, the film starts bizarrely on a plot beat of Marcus, played by John Barrymore, is in the Swiss Alps, and he has a gun. The town is banning guns. Because the French are occupying, which is not very well established. It took me a while to figure out exactly who was occupying the town. I didn't figure out the French were occupying it until they announced they weren't anymore. And you think, oh, well, this is going to be an unforgiven thing (laughs) where the guns are banned. It feels like a very American conflict. Mm, But no, mm, that's dropped after about 15 minutes. It's totally dropped. I guess it's used to establish John Barrymore's kind of devil-may-care individualism. But in a strange way... That doesn't really seem to be an important aspect of his character later on in the film. It more functions to, so like he won't give his gun up for anyone until Camilla comes up to him and is like, hey, listen, can you please do it? And then he's like, no, I'll never do it. And eventually he comes by and he gives her the gun because, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where their eternal love starts playing. He gives up the gun for her and he would never give up the gun for anyone else. That's how I read it, at least. Mm -hmm. But yeah, all that is dropped. Yeah. It's all dropped. And meanwhile, Pia, played by Mona Rico, is in love with Marcus, played by John Barrymore. And Lorenz is in love with Celia, played by Camilla Horn. And so you have this, you know, love square. There's a party scene early on where Marcus and Celia are drinking, having fun at this mass ball. And there is a point at which Celia just gets angry at Marcus. And I could not mm-hmm. for the life of me figure out why. I was just going through that scene again because I felt as if I, God forbid, looked at my phone and I had just missed something. But I didn't because I don't think I looked at my phone. I had the exact same reaction when I'm watching movies at home. Sometimes I'm doing my work and I want like a nice silent film soundtrack in the background. So I'll have to double back sometimes if I'm just casually watching something. Yeah. I was closely watching this. Yeah. And I still had to double back. Yeah, (laughs) I'm looking at the scene right now just to figure out what is happening. So he'd first find someone who looks very much like Siglia. What a weird name. Is Um, it Celia or Siglia? Let's go with Celia. Silent films. I'm just assuming it's Celia. (laughs) I've only seen it written. There's this other person who looks like her. So he puts his crown on her and he's like, oh, and then all the masks come off. And oh, my God, it's not Celia. And then he spots her. But that's not the conflict. 
no, 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 no. This is not the conflict. This is no, what it... you would think is the conflict. So he spots her across the room, runs over to her. They're like, oh, you look so beautiful, blah, blah. They start dancing. He starts drinking everyone's drink. And then he sits down and he's a little bit sloshed. And I think it's that he wants to publicly make out with her. Yeah, I thought it was either that or my reading was just that he's really drunk. Yeah. And that she doesn't like that. But it's it's such a fumbling of a dramatic beat where usually there'd be, you know, Lubitsch, up to this point, I mean, Lady Windermere's fan is so many little subtle beats where a character will turn in a scene and it's so well handled. And this one, it's just suddenly she gets angry and we have to kind of pick up the pieces to infer what's going on even on a basic. Yeah plot of character beats level yeah there's literally nothing okay so he 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 leaves the crown with the other lady you know uh he drinks everyone's drink he's he's acting drunk which is Mm -hmm. impossible for john barrymore because i think he's continuously drunk throughout the production so (laughs) he just has to exaggerate himself i guess which he does there's a great line in the book where apparently he was drunk all the time and if he was sober he was the biggest bore in the universe so they needed him kind of drunk <laughs> just tipsy enough yeah but, I mean, while we're while we're analyzing the scene like it's the darn Zapruder film um, <laughs> like at you know we go from like making Mary at 2100 to her being uncomfortable at 22 and that one minute period that one minute period the character conflict completely changes yeah. and yet here's the kicker that is the single most important thing to happen in the whole film. Because if her character had not turned at that point, mm-hmm. Pia would not have entered the carriage and not have gone home with Marcus to sleep with him. The entire plot would have been nothing. So it is very odd that essentially the inciting incident of this whole story is so badly fumbled. And I think that actually if there's a single issue with this film, it's it's that moment where you go, oh, you basically lose confidence in either yourself as the viewer or that the film is going to actually tell you the story beats you need to be told in a way that is legible. Very odd. <laughs> Let's be filmmakers here for a second and just think about how we could have done this properly. Because, yeah, the mm-hmm. moment where it changes is he drinks two drinks in a row and then wants to make out publicly and she feels embarrassed because she feels like everyone's looking at her. That whole moment just kind of plays out. He, she eventually like declines his advances and she's just like, you know what? Let's go home. I want to go home. I don't want to be here anymore. He wants to make out in the carriage. She also doesn't want to make out in the carriage. And mm-hmm. that's the end of it. She goes home. He goes home mad. And yeah, sleeps with the other lady, which I do think is a great reveal when he comes in and his face is just looks like angry, horny. Yes. And then the camera pans over to the costume that she was wearing at the costume party. You don't see anything, but you know that she's lying there naked on the bed. And I thought that was incredible like i love that moment but all of it leading up to it makes no emotional sense there's no urgency to any of it it's just kind of like this just kind of happens and they have a we need a conflict now yeah exactly it's just like a small couple squabble so i would have written it the way where if he would have put the crown on the other lady and he then gets up to get that crown she sees him getting the crown she's like oh you thought i was her how dare you you know like It's still a bad conflict, but at least it's a little bit more of a conflict. You know, you could add some more tiny conflicts to quantify the amount of conflicts, I guess. But yeah, just her being like, I don't want to make out in public, you're too drunk is. Yeah, 
Also not very well conveyed. It doesn't feel like it's rooted in anything in his character or hers. Let's think about how his character was has been reinforced in this party scene. We can tell that, one, he's a Second Amendment guy. He likes his gun. Two, throughout the scene, he's stealing drinks from other patrons. There's that kind of wide shot where they're dancing and constantly brushing up against the people around them. Hmm. So they kind of do not fit in this society. But we're not really... I'm not really sure how or what or the mechanics of that. So let's fix that, right? Okay, so why doesn't he fit in? Make it more about the fact that he's this like rugged individualist in a society that is hermetically sealed on a mountain, right? So what about that could cause him problems, right? So maybe yeah. he does something, you know, makes a very specific social faux pas, right? Like what mm -hmm. if he... I know. What if we establish that there's a tradition in this town where he like whips out his gun? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When they're you when know? they're dancing and he's moving, he's, he's pushing people away. People get mad at him because that also doesn't happen. He just pushes people away and it's yeah, played and for that like never oh, comes look a visual gag. Exactly. Like that's it. But that moment would have been like, hey, can you stop doing that? And he just pulls his gun. You know. Yeah, a guy comes out and tries to punch him. He pulls out uh, his gun and goes, hey, don't mess with yeah. me or something. And we can say that, oh wow, he is he's a dashing rogue with a heart of violence, and <laughs> she's uncomfortable with this. She says, let's go home and doesn't want to sleep with. Him and so he yeah. drunkenly sleeps with Pia. That I mean, that's not much better. But it's I'm not a great writer. But it's it feels like and, it's a little better. And and you could use that gun to keep it horny. You could use it as a phallic symbol. You know, Pia could kind of caress it and then go into you know like like seduce him while he's drunk. You're while saying he's using holding his objects gun. to externalize character. Wow. <laughs> if only the bitch had heard of that. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I know he can do it. I, mm -hmm. I I've seen him do it. Even there's none of that here. It's all just very lackluster. It was a contractual obligation. It shows. Well, in a scene like this. It shows in a scene like that. And I will say, though, that so the rest of the film, again, each of our romantic leads marries the secondary characters that they're not in love with. He because he either knocks up Pia or thinks he does. She, you know, goes with the, the backup option. They're still in love with each other. And this results in plot happens. John Barrymore has to shoot the other man who's married to his love in self-defense. Mm -hmm. And Celia, actually, I find it interesting that Celia is so credulous about that. She immediately believes him um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that it was yeah. self-defense. Well, this is where the gun returns, though, because isn't the gun it his does gun? Return. Yeah, because it is Chekhov. He, he had the gun. Never mind. Uh, but but I, like, I would also say that the gun returns. Yeah. But it doesn't return in a way that actually makes storytelling sense with the character. If, for example, you wanted to go full, like, I hung my head, gun control, cautionary tale with it. You know, what if John Barrymore is out hunting and it's blizzard on and the other guy is and he, he accidentally shoots him because he's so cavalier with his weapon. That's at mm -hmm. least granted in his character. But no, the beat of John Lorenz. Barrymore, a.k.a. Marcus, shooting Lorenz, they do everything they can to make it seem like John Barrymore had no other option. He does the only thing thing, right? Literally, Lorenz shoots John Barrymore. John Barrymore refuses to shoot back, says, I refuse to shoot back. Lorenz is about to shoot him again. And that's when John Barrymore shoots Lorenz. It's the yeah. most like black and white thing you ever saw. There's no moral gray area at all. It's self-defense yeah. through and through. And that doesn't feel like it actually speaks to anything we've been told about Marcus's flaws. No, no. Plot conveniences materialize as they are needed. We never are sure that he was shot because he fell down a well and he couldn't or he fell down a hole and he couldn't find him anymore afterwards. That's why he goes to Celia to say like, hey, I couldn't find him. And then suddenly he shows up with the entire town. It's very convoluted. And then it becomes a zombie movie. 
Which the is ending, the best part of the movie. Yes. Yes. 100%. <laughs> That's the nice thing about old films is that, you know, everything was so cheap and everyone wanted to work on them. Joking, of course. There are so many extras on the screen. You can really feel all the people running around. So it's actually scary when they go all go into mm. one room and then go out again. It's like, we couldn't find him. Let's, you know, uh, look further. Yeah. It's not like three people. No, these are like probably 50, 60 people that are just like more probably if you get the wives. What happens is Lorenz shows yeah. up back from the dead. John Barrymore failed to kill him and it's very forced with the entire town and he and Pia blame Marcus and yeah. Celia for the shooting of Lorenz and eventual death of Lorenz. And so the town turns into a, ho- a mob and chases them out. This is the scene that when I was finished the film, I went, okay, this is by definition better than either of the Dead Queen movies. This last like eight to 10 minutes is quite thrilling. It's very evocative. You have a a nighttime chase scene, which is very ambitious through the Swiss Alps, mostly done in studios, but with fake snow. But it's just beautifully shot and ends on the most insane note. The last minute of the film, I think, is where it truly becomes something kind of special for a bit. Marcus and Celia pray to God for salvation and God implicitly provides it to them, gives them an off-ramp, which is an avalanche that they step into and get crushed to death on screen. Yeah. Note about that, I do want to say, which I do love the determinism in that moment of like, Oh, here, look, God created an avalanche for us. Let's walk into it. But wouldn't it have been stronger if both of them are in their embrace and they are then hit by the avalanche? Kind of like Pompeii style to call uh, back to a Paul W.S. Anderson movie that I absolutely love. Like that would have been much stronger. I do love that they they walk into it. I, yeah, I, they I just love like they casually. And then the movie becomes something else. Like they, they go to the light, I guess. And then the sun appears and it's like, abs- it's an abstract you know, 1920s avant-garde movie all it's of a like sudden. It's like Wagnerian. It's yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I think Tim Brayton in his review of this on Letterboxd put it better than I could, which is the ending is so wildly far outside my expectations for what a Hollywood studio of this or indeed any era would ever think was in bounds. A combination of Old Testament fury and German romantic passion that goes so far beyond the normal rules for a silent melodrama that I want there to be some other word for it. <laughs> um, and I wish I, I wish I wish I had that that gift of turning phrases, but it is yeah. bonkers. I mean, and here's why I, I dig the fact that they go into the avalanche and why Pompeii is more acceptable, because in Pompeii and other films of that, ilk, this is a quite a common ending, right? Hmm. You, you, you give up and go, OK, there's no point in struggling anymore. Let the elements take us. Yeah. This is a suicide. What is happening in this film that if they had done nothing, they would have not been crushed by the avalanche, but they walk into it. Yeah. Okay. They make, okay, okay, they okay, make okay, a decision. Yeah. And that's what I think makes it feel a bit more transgressive. And also that because we see it happen. It isn't like fade to black. It's I thought it was going to cut on that wide shot that shows them walking away from camera. But no, there's a medium shot of them being gradually buried in snow and then crushed by rocks. It's quite explicit. Yeah, which is kind of harrowing as well, because like, can you imagine being in that moment? And also, once again, I want to refer to the fact that the movie is called Eternal Love, that their entire struggle was because she didn't want to kiss him at a party and they had like a little kerfuffle uh, one night. He cheats, which has massive repercussions to a degree where John Barrymore, sorry, Marcus, is very unhappily married to Pia for 
I don't know how long because like the movie doesn't really care much for temporal indications. So they could have been married for two weeks. They could have been married for three months, three years, whatever. They just get married and they're very miserable. Uh, but then on the other end, Celia marries Lorenz and Lorenz is kind of like, you know, nice to her. She ha- They have a like decent relationship going. You have that one beautiful little shot of them at the table where they scooping up food and stuff and showing that they're pretty happy. She just sometimes thinks about Marcus. And the moment she hears that Marcus is in trouble or something like that, she gets distraught for good reason, because, yeah, sure, you know, you would be distraught from an old lover or a friend or, you know, there's still something there, but it's fine, you know, and that's all the all the drama in this film is so forced beyond like everyone's reaction is so enormous compared to what happens besides the whole cheating part, uh, you know, in a small town in the Swiss Alps in the 1920s, I guess, you know, that, <laughs> or in, in that, that really, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. It, it, like that, that, w- that would fuck up your uh, future. I, I do think, I mean, that th- also is, I think very instructive of how the film kind of bungles almost all of its dramatic beats, because in my opinion, at least her reacting with distraught to like a longtime acquaintance of hers, <laughs> that's true. possibly dying. Lorenz, has lost me at the moment that he just immediately looks and stares at her with daggers. Says, How dare you care about this man that you knew? So Marcus has to marry Pia. He doesn't want to marry Pia, but he has to marry her because now, like, she's not even pregnant. It's not like they have kids suddenly. They had sexual intercourse once, and now they have to get married because, you know, whatever. It's the 1800s. I get that. But, like, he also stays around. He's not, like, the rugged individual that just then is like, you know what? I'm going to live in the mountains. You know, screw this. He stays around. But then I would say it's like, use that to have him pine over Celia. But that never happens either, I think. So it just, you know, he's just kind of there being annoyed at the situation and does nothing to be close to Celia. It's tough to know. I mean, for example, is the film actually 72 minutes or are we missing parts, right? We could be missing a reel, but it almost feels like there's a there's some material missing at that point when yeah. we see Marcus in the mountains, we see a wedding, and later we see Pia going from door to door going, we need to rescue Marcus. We've had no indication that Marcus is in trouble aside from Pia telling us that. Even a shot of him in the blizzard waving his arms a bit would establish that. But yeah. the film has such an odd way of relaying information like that. But I do want to say in the book that you were that you were referring to right now, yeah, 1806, I just saw it. This movie is referred to by one of its actors as about 80 minutes. Yeah. And it's 71. The version that we saw is 71. So it feels like... It is 25 like- frames per second, the version we're seeing now. Mm, um, so okay 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 that might it's tough to know and also i mean if it was four reels i guess it would be 80 minutes so it could be missing stuff i think just as likely an explanation is that they didn't give a shit enough to like ever do a reshoot for this thing yeah they just exactly went, you it know, was fine we, we got it clicks together exactly let's yeah. move on to the love parade you know yeah. <laughs> it, like i mean it reads like you can follow the story it's not after last season where you have like what is going on I don't know what's going on. No, it's le- it's legible in broad strokes. Exactly. It is legible. It is very broad as well by design, where all the story beats need to hit in a certain way for it to move forward. Because if anyone would shrug at any of the moments, you would lose the entire movie. So everyone has to be super overly dramatic and immediately go to the worst conclusions and yada, yada, yada. Because, yeah, there would be no movie without that. I think you're right. I think there are no gaps here i think they filled in what they could fill in they were just like you know what if we move to this scene it works it's still legible move on you know 
Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the closest he ever came, I think, in America to making a bad movie. I, I think it's around the line. I mean, not that the point of this show is saying this is a good movie, this is a bad movie, but it's indicative of how generally good he was in this era, that this is the worst of them, because I don't think this movie is a write-off. There's interesting stuff about it. We haven't even mentioned the camera movement. Yeah. Um, the, The dolly shots have a wonderful haste to them. The film is very well composed oh man the scene where she gets married and then he's being followed by like an overlay of the bell yeah the sound of the bells because but you don't have sound so well i mean they did but like you don't have sound so he shows it in the frame where he overlays this like Mm -hmm. bell toiling over him being in the mountains and trying to get away from it which is wonderful i love that speaking of which i mean you say uh you, you touched upon something there that i think is very interesting because in a film like this they would have had to have designed it for both cinemas that could handle the Vitaphone and cinemas that could not. So, mm. for example, for that beat with the bells, if Lubitsch had the confidence that the film would only ever be shown with the soundtrack, maybe he didn't need those overlays. Mm. But because he didn't have that and he knew that the film would be shown in both contexts, you got to have the overlays to establish that he's thinking about the bells. Similarly... I want to point everyone's attention to the opening title sequence, which is a very strange order, if you notice, where we go, usual films of this era, directed by Ernst Lubitsch, then you have the department heads, then you have the players, and then we cut to the film. Except, in between that, you have the credit for the musical score. And that's the only credit, as well, where there's a fade to black both before and after it. My guess is that credit did not exist in the silent version because, you know, people would be going, oh, there's a score. So they clearly made that credit with modularity in mind. So one of the many interesting things about this film is a transitional work, right? Where you even the left parade, there was a silent version that was made from it, which is, I mean, I can't imagine that film working very well. It's not in context. So a lot of very interesting little artifacts from like, again, the bell scene where you can see, okay, there's creative decisions being made. with the knowledge of the convoluted nature of the film's release. Yeah, exactly. And historically, it is a very interesting film. Still, it is a Lubitsch, so it's, like you said, this one's better than the two Debt Queen movies that he's made. (laughs) And also, I want to say, the shot shots of people knocking on the door. There are a couple of them. I think we were talking on the Discord about this at some point, where there is no greater shot than a fixed image where something enters the frame and... A hand entering the frame to knock on this very old looking, mm-hmm. you know, textury, beautiful door, very front lit is just gorgeous. And there's a couple of those in there, which are, uh, which to my, I, I wanted to make a super cut of those, but mm-hmm. who has the time? I mean, it, that's probably the, the single thing. The door stuff in this film is probably the single thing that most identifies it as a Lubitsch film. Yeah. Where, I mean, you have some fun play with it. I did laugh. There's one, one of the very few comic beats in the film is when Marcus goes home. There's a wide shot of the cabin. He walks into the cabin. We're seeing it from the exterior and it holds on it for another beat. You're wondering, why are we holding on this wide shot? Oh, and, yeah. you know, the door opens and Pia comes out and she's been thrown out. And, you know, th- yeah, th- yeah, that's yeah, a gag. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's very funny. It is. It is interesting how few and far between those gags are. I think there's only a few little bits like that in the film where I thought, whoa, levity. Imagine that in an Ernst Lubitsch movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this also doesn't feel like, I mean, c- compared to Broken Lullaby, which is his only remaining upcoming straight drama, that film for all its faults and it has faults feels like he was made from a place of deep yearning to say something Lubitsch had things to get off his chest yeah and this one it feels like it's just a melodrama make work project because it is Um, Hmm. and that's that's eternal love a romantic movie that has uh, the title eternal love in the thing and yet none of their love seems (laughs) 
to be that eternal or they could have just run off with each other, you know, like, come on, man. Yeah. That <sighs> it, that, I always wonder that it's like, why don't you just move to Italy? It's right over yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Just like go away, take a trek, you know, builds the bond. I do think the ending, the very ending does kind of justify the title a little where it's about them wanting yeah. their, their current moment of love to be in posterity for eternity until the glacier melts. A weird way I went, wow, they kind of stuck the landing on the title. And the, I don't think the themes of the ending interface with the themes of the rest of the film at all. It's a great ending in search of a, in search of a movie. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll take what I can get. It's a better ending than Madame Dewberry. So this is the last episode of the season, of this third season, right? We're in the mm, third season Third right season, now. we're at yeah. the end of the silent era. Exactly. I asked this, I think, in the finale of the first season. So I'm just going to do it again. Are there any big takeaways? How have you experienced this last season? How has it changed in the past three seasons? Those are a couple of questions. So go. Well, this is actually a much easier question to ask this time because this actually is the last episode I'm recording of the season. Uh, last season, I think yours was the third to last episode we recorded-ish. So yeah. uh, I hadn't actually finished, but this time I actually have finished. And also, I've also, spoiler alert, recorded more than half of all the rest of the show. So this, this show is a little nonlinear. But I think what I've noticed is that every time I, you know, get referred to some new academic, to some new work on Lubitsch, I have to grapple with the fact that I'm not a serious scholar, right? I do not have a PhD. I, I'm a filmmaker in my daily life. I'm not a film academic or a scholar. And every time I learn something new that completely just shifts my own perception of Lubitsch and films of this period, I go, wow, well, I guess I'll have to remake the rest of the show. <laughs> so I'm finding myself more than ever, now more than ever, uh, riven by these two emotions. One is this immense excitement, how much I'm learning making the show. And that was part of the impetus behind the show. I wanted to make the show at the point I made it, one, to capitalize on my own excitement, but two, <laughs> to make it a, as much of a learning process for me, because there's a certain genre of podcast or anything writing that comes from a place of such kind of comfort with your knowledge that you kind of lose touch with the steps you take to get to that knowledge. I wanted this podcast to essentially be accessible for people who were not like completely literate in every aspect of Lubitsch and all that surrounding him. If I wanted to do that, it would have probably waited three or four years and just like devoured every possible book on Lubitsch and watched all the movies multiple times and just become a scholar basically. Right. I feel like I've learned more making this show than I have doing virtually any project I've done in my life. It's been incredible. I've met so many wonderful people, made made some very great friends, and it's been amazing. But simultaneously, it feels like every day or two, I'm learning something where I go, oh, wow, if only I had known that a year ago. <laughs> if only I had been able to bring this knowledge to this specific episode. I mean, but ironically, the only reason I'm, I'm learning these things is because I, for example, put out those episodes, people reached out to me saying, this might be of interest. This is really interesting. The relationship between the show is a learning process for me and is a learning process for the audience. And as a record of kind of a trip from relative ignorance to relative knowledge, not absolutes in either way, but relative, it's been a re real harrowing journey in a good way. But I don't have any wider thesis here, but that's my current kind of state of mind that I'm really excited about the show, but I've still 
cringing at all the things. And I know I shouldn't, but I'm still cringing a little at all the little things where I went, oh, wow, I can look back already just eight months into this and go, boy, was I a doofus. <laughs> so it, it's very interesting. And yeah, no, I mean, recording this, this is the first season finale that I'm recording after my trips to New York and Los Angeles, where I've been had the immense pleasure of recording with some guests in person and just delving into some archives. And so the, the show has become real in a way that it wasn't before when it was just all virtual. So it's, you know, it's, um, I'm excited to present all of the sound film episodes I've already recorded and to record all the ones I haven't. I think the next season is going to be more academic than ever. Fun times for all mm. the listeners. We have, you know, multiple experts on various aspects of sound technology and the way that, for example, mm -hmm. film rhythm was impacted by sound. I hope people continue to listen. Uh, I'm very excited for my episode for uh, next season, uh, but we'll keep that a surprise. For, I mean, on a practical level, I'm looking forward to getting to the episodes where the films are accessible. Mm, um, yeah, season yeah, yeah. three is a real low point where if we're going to go by what's out there, what is like literally exists in the world, there are great versions of over half the films in this season. Mm. But in terms of what's actually attainable by you, the listener, there is a grand total of one officially released HD version of any of the films in this season, at least the Lubitsch films. And that is three women. So this mm. is Paris and Rosita have been aired, but never released on home video in oh, their fuck. nice restorations. The rest yeah. are either completely unavailable, even if they exist, like the MoMA restorations, or just non-existent, like the student prince in Old Heidelberg, which is still possibly my favorite film of this season by a hair. It hasn't been touched since its Laserdisc release. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, with each iteration, with each conversation, everything has like this revisionist element to it where you immediately mm -hmm. want to go back and see things in a different light uh i've had this with hong sung so plenty of times where i wanted to go back i'm currently in a reading group which is probably one of the most highbrow things i've ever done uh with a friend of the film, film formerly show josh cabrita and a couple of other people and we're reading the the deleuze cinema books also that is one of those things where yeah we we meet up every two weeks we watch a movie around it and every conversation i just need to revisit all the previous chapters because something new has come to light and you know like mm -hmm. that's kind of like the the basis of philosophy as well like sometimes you read something about a philosopher or about an idea and you have to revisit all the other stuff it's like wait does does he mean this you know and the same goes with filmmakers like this so yeah i think it will be a joy when all of this is out to listen to them in succession and slowly have the world of Lubitsch revealed to you much more than you would have anticipated because you were a fan beforehand. Uh, once again, I would love to refer to the fact that you uh, geeked out in front of the... Uh, How would uh, Lubitsch uh, do it, son? Yeah, 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 that one. Yeah, yeah. So you were already a fan, but yeah, that that turned into you deepen that admiration and appreciation through the information that you're getting over the, over the course of all this time. So yeah, I think that is a very fair assessment and I think is the beauty of a project like this where... Uh, uh, yeah, you open yourself up to receive all this new information. And then, yeah, uh, maybe in 10 years, looking back on this podcast, uh, maybe you will find yourself a doofus, but you've created an archive of information for a lot of people to access, not to stress you out for the eternity of time until you take it down. <laughs> until the Squarespace uh, submission runs out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
Exactly, exactly. Podcasts are very easy to take down and have disappear, yes. by the way. That's very nice about I, podcasts. Um, this is why podcasters back up everything locally in three places, and <laughs> that's what we did. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that, it, uh, that the project's paying off. It's been one of the most rewarding projects I've ever done in terms of just, not financially, <laughs> it's <laughs> money pit, but as far as uh, financial boondoggles go, this has been incredibly enriching for me, and yeah. I'm so glad I, I embarked on this thing. So when is when is Lubitsch gonna did, like? Did you contact him yet? Is he gonna come on the show or has he declined? Uh, uh, his agent says uh, uh. He, at 120 he uh, he's having a difficult time. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would too. I would just be like, yeah, who gives a shit? I'm not gonna come on the show. At the very least, I hope the show is a fun oral history of like what circa 2023 a bunch of academics thought of Lubitsch It'd be fun. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good time capsule. Maybe in the future, uh, other lost films will be uh, found in someone else's uh, unrelated film archives. And then maybe we can, uh, you know, revisit these things. That'd be the best excuse to continue the show. If if you know of a lost Lubitsch film, <laughs> send it my way. Actually, more specifically, send it to like the Munich Film Archive and uh, they'll do a good job restoring it. Well, thank you, Brom, for joining me for the end of the season. And always thank you, audience, for joining me. I'll see you in six weeks or in Lubitsch times, six months and eight days from now, on November 19th, 1929, when the Love Parade comes out and the movies begin talking. Hooray! Yay! And with that, season three of How Would Lubitsch Do It comes to a close. And with it, the silent era. Next season, they can talk. Join us in October as we enter the next phase of Ernst Lubitsch's career with his first musical, The Love Parade. Thanks so much to the guests who lent their time and support to the season. Peter Labuza, Tim Brayton, Molly Raspberry, Sarah Shackett, James Panko, Will Ross, Dave Kerr, Julia Sermons, David Neary, David Cairns, and Bram Reuter. To our editors, Griffin Scheel, Gloria Mercer, and Will Ross. To our recording engineer, Anya Shitekskot. And all the others who lent valuable counsel and support. Jose Arroyo, Matt Severson, and the Margaret Herrick Library, Museum of Modern Art in New York, Dara Jaffe and the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, Patrick Keating, Scott Iman, Paul Cuff, and many, many others. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season, and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Will Ross was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Tonsils. Positively tonsils.